Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Revolutionary Jargon on the FHO Network. We have our first returning guest out of 14 guests I've had so far on Revolutionary Jargon. He is from episode seven of What is Anarchism? And we explained a lot of it back in episode seven. He is EQ and he will be back today to discuss gardening. At first we discussed how to run and fight the revolution and then now we'll be discussing how to feed the revolution. So say hi to our audience again, EQ, what's up? Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, this is awesome. I can't believe I'm actually the first the first return guy. Yeah, usually, usually don't have a lot of return guests, but um, it's nice to have you back. Yeah, it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. So I've been looking at some of your uh, articles and I'll share this to the screen for everyone in a couple seconds, but you put out two articles that I wanna um, digest on and really show everyone. And the first one on the screen I'll show right now is really an intro to gardening and planning your space. And I guess on the left right now, there's been a lot of talk on really taking back your power from um, the big food industrial complex. Because those of you who may not know, or those of you who may know, uh, prior, prior to COVID really going on and, to, and prior to businesses shutting down and to COVID from going at its peak, you would see stories uh, about a year ago of like these uh, big farming industrial complexes throwing away food. Uh, synonymously, there was a potato farm and they would dump potatoes in the ground and completely waste them. And really in terms of the capitalistic system of supply and demand, if you obliterate the supply and demand is high, you would get more for profit. And so by them throwing it away, that's how they would escape it. But if they, if, but if they didn't do it, by the supply being really extremely high and demand being low, they would have to basically give those potatoes for free. So they would rather throw them away than give them to people who need it. And so why are we talking about this now? Well, the reason why we're talking about this now is because we want to create an ability for you, the proletariat, to not only grow food for your communities in a shared lot, but also grow food from your home. That way you don't have to rely on supermarkets and grocery stores to really grow your own food. And so my man AQ here, he writes some pretty good articles. Um, you should subscribe to his Substack at Practical Anarchism. And he really will break down um, really how to plan for your own gardening space, as well as uh, how to build the soil. So that's, this is the first two articles we're gonna discuss. Um, what are some good areas to grow food on? Cause not a lot, it depends on the type of soil you use and to which you can yield good crops. So we'll be talking about that as well as what are some good places where you could put garden, put gardening, depending on your community, and uh, how to do that in your own home? So, EQ, give us a quick explanation of the different type of areas in which you can um, really begin a garden. Yeah. So the cool thing about it is um, literally any place, and that's it's one of those things where um, you know uh, you we learn in. I think at this point it's like fourth or fifth grade science class, right? That in order for plants to grow, they need sunlight, water, some kind of dirt, right? So as long as you've got dirt, water, sunlight, you can grow plants. Um, and so there is obviously a, periodically a little bit more that goes into it, especially if you want to have a successful garden um, that you can sustainably feed yourself and your family off of uh, for an extended period of time. Or, you know, if you're doing some sort of like communal system, um, there's, there's some, some extra things you want to have in that. 
But yeah, so as you kind of scroll through these photos, so like these are kind of a couple of different things, like whether you're in a standard kind of residential zone or like this one that you're hovering over right now, um, this is a Section 8 housing uh, complex. Everybody kind of remembers what these look like. They're those old school cinder blocked, like side-by-side -side duplexes, single story. They're usually like a two bed, one bath, uh, relatively small. And there's just green space in between them. There's usually not fences. There's usually, you know, not a whole lot of stuff. Places like this, um, from an organizing perspective are absolutely just prime for organizing for like kind of socialistic, communistic, anarchistic food communal spaces. Um, you can grow basically in a four by eight, a four foot by eight foot planter bed, uh, two to three vegetables in a pretty robust enough manner that, for example, if this whole section eight housing uh, area development, if I remember correctly, there's like 70 units, right? So if every single one of them did that, that would be 140 different vegetables with more than enough crop to suffice on a family. And so if you alternate, like, so for example, the, where you see it says Poplar Avenue up there, right there, and down on Timberlane Lane Avenue. So like if the, the people at Poplar Avenue are doing, say, lettuce and cucumbers, and the people down at Timberlane are doing uh, carrots and peas, and then somebody next to them is doing something else. And every once a week, you all meet up together and you kind of swap those spoils e equally right? Um, in fact, a place like this is big enough that if you had a functioning community, everybody could just dedicate to a single vegetable crop. And then so in that play, way, you would just share amongst the community. At that point, now you don't have to go grocery shopping. You've got a substantial enough amount of food that's being produced every single week that can be shared and parsed out to everyone um, in just such a small amount of space, right? Four feet by eight feet is nothing. You know, it's 32 square feet. Um, for those who are kind of trying to like envision that in your head, it's slightly long. It's like if you had two of those Walmart bookshelves next to each other, like sitting next to each other, those cheap, like $20 Walmart bookshelves, um, those are basically like a one by like two by five, right? So something a little bit bigger than that, uh, as like a floor, uh, uh, a footprint, that's all it takes to, to feed people. Um, if you have enough people committing to it. Um, but I mean, with some of the other options, right? Like, obviously not everybody lives in a house. Some people live in apartments. Some people live in townhomes that don't have yards. Um, some people just don't have access to what we would see as space. And that's okay because there are many other ways that you can grow food, even in limited spaces like that. You've got, um, you know, five gallon buckets. You've got, you know, typical pots, right? You can go to any Lowe's, Home Depot, pick up a, a good yeah, size. clothing bins, like those uh, big, like, plastic blue tubs you put clothes in, you could do yeah, that as well. Absolutely. Basically, if you can stick dirt in it, and <laughs> you can get access to water and sunlight, you can grow plants in it. Um, I, think what you're, I think what you're saying so far is a good idea, because this is something that's been done really on a larger scale level when working class people um, black or white, of course, the economic conditions and the benefits you get by the government to supply for your farming is different, is different depending on those type of regions, but that's not what we're talking about. But in general, um, what you're doing is it's kind of like a throwback to what happened in the 1800s and really the early 1900s, where working class people would really supply themselves, uh, use their families to generate uh, wealth and feed their families and their communities as well. 
you know, um, yeah. a certain farm would have corn, a certain farm would have dairy, a certain farm would have wheat. And mm -hmm. so I think what you're advocating for here is like, okay, let's kind of go back to that, but in a way where it's not something we depend on for our livelihood, like it was for the prior generations, but as a way to feed ourselves. And at the same time, if you want to sell, then you could. And what yeah. it also does is it takes us from off of that market where we depend on those certain type of goods and allow the big, uh, big um, food industrial complex guys control the market. And then by working class people flooding the market, it kind of makes the value more fair. It also forces um, the food industrial complex to provide uh, better goods because if they're the ones controlling the market, then they're gonna, if they can basically put out shitty products and color different types of vegetables to make it look that's good. It. And so and, which, yep, go and ahead. that's what you get. You get those Monsanto, just kind of these like weird, like basically poisoned vegetables. Um, and what a lot of people don't recognize is that, um, you know, if you go to any given grocery store in, in the United States and you look at 500 different, oh, hold on just a second. Yeah, so no problem. So basically- My dogs made it into the room. Um, sorry, so yeah, if you, if you <laughs> no go to a grocery store and you look at any one of like say 300 different brands, and you think to myself, or you think to yourself, oh man, you know, look at all these choices I have. The reality is, is those brands are all owned by six companies. There's, uh, there are six companies that exist in the world that own every single thing that goes basically into your body. And that's like food, water, cleaning supplies, whatever the case is, six companies. Um, and so like having the power to take some of that back, right? And, and be like, no, Johnson & Johnson, you don't get to control every single thing that like every aspect of my life right there's something valuable to that um and yeah so it's like one of the things i have to tell people when i'm out organizing in person and in the streets is that the reason why your grandmother survived the great depression is because she had a localized supply chain right things like actual staples like a lot of people don't know this but like the the kind of the food stamps and the, like the rations that people were getting during world war ii and the great depression era uh before it uh weren't good it's like here's like a can of spam here's like a small can of like government cheese here's a thing of peanut butter good luck right people would have never survived on the things that the government were handing out but they had small home gardens you know like so your potatoes your or your carrots your um, like small uh, batches of wheat, onions, those types of things, those were all grown at the house. So, which is also where the development of like casseroles came from, because it's like you didn't have any money. So you just take whatever the government gave you, and then you would grab whatever you harvested that week, and you would just cram it all together into something, bake it with kind of like a, like a sauce mixture. And it's just like, and then you just eat that for three or four days, because that's how you maintain calories. And that's how you get all the nutrition you needed. So there's, and there's even places now, um, I do recommend for a lot of people, there's a, a Netflix documentary right now called High on the Hog um, that talks uh, primarily about um, African folks and their relationship to food and how that ties them back to the continent and a lot of these other things. And in one of the episodes, there is a couple of different people and they're out in North Carolina doing the thing we were just talking about, right? They have these small garden plots they're meeting weekly where they're eating dinner, having conversations about how this spreads, how they can grow this process. Um, and we know that this works so well, even right now in the modern era, 
uh, because there's a place called, L or there's an organization called LA Crop Swap that a good friend of mine, Jemiah Hargens, runs uh, out in uh, West Adams up Los Angeles, where he convinced a bunch of people who basically have like 10 foot by 10 foot backyards into planting a pair of beds, all sharing the spoils. And not only do they all now have enough food to eat, but a lot of them have been able to kind of plant an extra fruit tree here or there or do something else in their backyard. And they also now have started a farmer's market. So people are bringing in income in addition to feeding their families cleaner, better quality food, kind of like what you were talking about. So now you have a system where not only are you making a little bit of money on the side, you're feeding yourself, you know where your food's coming from. You're watching it from seed to plant to, to table. So you know that there's not like weird pesticides or any of this other like chemical nonsense being sprayed all over your food. It gives you just like that kind of better. Um, and there's, there is something about it. It's just like, I, it's hard to describe. If you've never eaten a potato that's grown out or a tomato or a cucumber that's grown out of your own backyard, like it's hard to describe, but like the taste of those things, like what those things actually are supposed to taste like versus what happens if you go to like Kroger or Walmart or something and buy those, it's it's not even close. Oh, it's, I know exactly how you do Because yeah. uh, when I go down south to my family, um, my family, when they have their own farms and they have their own plots of land where they grow food, like uh, they grow fresh corn, they grow collard greens, they grow okra, they grow- oh my gosh, fresh, fresh collard greens? Oh, I only yeah. had one plant when I was living in Alabama that actually took, uh, and I mean, those leaves, you know, in a place are like gigantic. Alabama, they get massive. I mean, they'll be two and a half, three feet tall and about a foot wide. Oh, yeah. And it's just like you, you chop one of those down and that's all you would need for like a week worth of well, salads, you know? And it's, well, the, well, if it depends if you're going to cook it. If you're just going to eat it raw, then um, yeah, but if you're going to cook it down, yeah, like, it cooks uh, down a lot worse. Yeah, but, yeah, it's good. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, yeah. that's why it's a good thing those are big because they're going to, reduce pretty they go quickly, fast like, in the south <laughs> oh yeah they go fast in the south and so like one of the favorite dishes i love since we're talking about food so this relates so keep track everyone but yeah <laughs> one of the dishes i like is uh fried okra with uh, uh tomatoes on there because they also they love growing tomatoes you put that in a skillet oh like, it's so good green like fried green tomatoes and fried okra like just with all whatever other barbecue meat related fixing to get like oxtail or any of these types of things man like you are just uh it's oh yeah oxtail indescribable too. like how good how good that meal is especially when it like when it comes from your backyard and you know like how fresh all that is that makes a lot of sense uh, can you explain uh what this graphic you have here because i believe i saw something similar to this on one of your uh, posts on twitter i believe a couple months back mm -hmm. um you were involved with helping a friend um, grow their own garden. And so I believe right what we're seeing for our audience and for our radio audience is that there's a image here which shows how big the actual bed you, you could use to grow vegetables, um, the walking space, and also the compost system. So like if you are, because um, then when you're doing a garden at times, when you grow a patch of food, sometimes you'll have scraps left over, like a couple of roots, a couple of leaves. Uh, sometimes you have some bad uh, fruit and fruit, fruit means like vegetables and actual like lemons and stuff like that, where it's not as good, it's not good for eating. So you can have like a compost system on the side, which shows the four by four, we can put that in there, turn it over, and it kind of re-fertilizes the soil. Cause right. the more, cause the more times you use a plot of land for um, fruit, it sucks up those nutrients from the soil. You need to replenish it. Cause if it's not, you can turn a fertile land into an infertile land. So that's right. 
I think yes. I probably explained it, but yeah. <laughs> you go a yeah, little bit yeah, deeper. And, and it's worth noting, though, too, like as a quick add-on, right? Like when you when you go back and you think about in school where you learned about the Dust Bowl, right? The reason why the Dust Bowl happened was literally that exact process. People just kept over farming the exact same types of land, not utilizing any of the wisdom that they'd gotten from indigenous populations about crop rotation or any of these other things. And what they ended up doing is obliterating the topsoil, which is basically that top couple of inches of actual like fertile dirt that's not just basically like powdered clay or, you know, kind of powdered sand or whatever. And so they just kind of like sucked the nutrients dry out of that into the point where it went from being soil into being dirt and then when the winds kick up which if you've ever been out in the midwest you know a place like kansas or whatever those winds get nasty so when those winds blow in there goes like all of the ground that your farm was and it just blows away into the wind into some other state and so yeah the dust bowl was strictly because of bad farming practices so yeah this this particular graph here is when i was living in northern alabama we had a pretty good sized um, backyard. Uh, we we worked for a university there and had university housing. And we had this really nice little corner lot that the university provided us. And I mean, I had the, the backyard would have been probably like 20 feet by 150 feet or something. Like it was huge. Probably, I think we were sitting on like a half acre total for the whole lot. Um, so there was one small corner in the back uh, that just got all a ton of sun. You know, there weren't a bunch of trees or anything blocking any of that. And so I put up a small bit of chicken wire fence uh, to keep the dogs from going back and, and shredding everything. And I, and I built this system. And basically what I did is I found a bunch of free supplies, uh, like plywood and things like that. Is this in feet or inches? This is all feet. Okay. Right? So um, basically what you're looking at is a two foot wide by four foot long bed. Um, you put basically about 12 inches of space in between each of those beds. Um, and that's, that's enough for you to like walk, kind of get to either side, pick things up as, as you go. But yeah, so in basically a 10 by 20, that's 200 square feet. So the size of an average bedroom in somebody's like house, right? Uh, here in the United States, inside the size of an average bedroom, or I guess maybe a little bit better bedrooms, usually 10 by 10. So let's call it a living room, right? In the size of your living room, you can plant 10 beds and have a compost system for kind of a frame of reference. So yeah, in this 200 square feet, I ended up having, yeah, I think I had worked it out because some of them were a little bit thinner and, and like just kind of generally, some of them were like eight feet long. Some of them were like one by somethings. I think I ended up with like 13 beds and then my compost system. Um, and that compost system super easy to build. It's just a bunch of pallets stood up on their ends, right? I had five of those. So it was like shaped like an E. It was two, two compartments. So all of my scraps and junk and roots and everything go into one side and then it turn over in the other one as it started to decompose. Um, yeah, and I mean, I grew so much food, we weren't buying hardly any groceries for a couple of the summers we were out there. Um, Cause we just, we had food. I was giving stuff away. The cucumbers were massive. Like we had tons of tomatoes, uh, beets, like uh, bell peppers, um, all of the herbs that you would want for your kitchen, basil, uh, dill, um, those types of things. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we had quite the harvest and it takes a lot of work up front, but once you put in a bunch of that upfront labor, um, I mean, you're talking like 35 minutes a week worth of maintenance to upkeep this, right? So a lot of people worry that like, oh, I can't afford that, like have a garden, I don't have time for that. You don't need 
time for that. What you need is basically two weekends that you can really dedicate to building beds, kind of trenching, pouring soil, doing all that type of stuff. And then from there, um, you need like half an hour a week. And if you've got that, then, then you can sustain yourself. Yeah, of course. Also, too, I see a lot of times in the country, uh, if you have just food, no, no plastic, no paper, nothing like that. But if you have like scraps of food, like rinds of watermelon, like down south, we love our melons. So if you have like rinds where you're just going to throw them in the trash, just throw them in the compost. If you have different types of scraps that you want to throw away, just put it in a bag, throw it in the compost. Because what we explained earlier and how you don't want to fuck up your soil um, by adding it to the compost system and um, by the time you want to redo your garden the next year, you could spread that soil around and it would make the nutrients even better. So yeah. that's what I wanted to add. Absolutely. Right. So any, any food scraps and um, in, in another article I got, which I, I imagine we'll get to a little later. Um, there's, there's a guy who's got a YouTube video I linked to where he has what's called the no rules compost. Cause a lot of people have rules. Oh, don't put tomatoes in. Don't put acidic stuff in. Don't put this thing. Don't put in meat or dairy or bones or whatever right because that almost so he he's been running this this test for like seven or eight years where he basically him and all of his neighbors in this area he's got this big compost system and they asked him like what they could put in it and his rule is if at one point in time it was alive you can stick it in the compost whatever it <laughs> doesn't matter True. and what he's found is that like when you have a large enough system no like humans that, though no humans. yeah yeah no, don't put the people in take too, <laughs> take too long to break down but when, but even then, like, so I would like at the end of Thanksgiving, right? We're getting rid of like some of the leftovers because we've eaten all the turkey sandwiches and nothing left. Like, I would take the carcass from the bird that go in the compost, right? I would take like anything that was getting scraped. Like, when we buy paper plates, we buy the ones that are compostable. So it's like you don't even have to like clean up that much. Like, you just take everybody's plate out from in front of them, stick it into a bucket, dump it out in the compost, man. It's like it, I don't got to do dishes after Thanksgiving dinner. I don't have to fight with all this stuff it's all going out there and in you know eight weeks it's soil that's replenishing the garden space so tell me about the worms because some people don't really like worms some people you know think worms aren't necessary so how do worms really help a garden in general worms are literally the best thing you can possibly have for your garden and it's we we've got we had a whole saga about the worms my wife is one of those people who is also very anti-bugs just bugs in general. Worms were definitely not, uh, wasn't a fan. But the thing is, is so pretty much how this works is that, um, especially down south, they're really easy. You can just literally dig a hole and there's just going to be like a ton of worms. If you're looking for what are called night crawlers or red wigglers, what, what would be your standard earthworms? Earthworms are pretty much a, a mouth, a stomach, and a butt, and that's it, right? And all they do is just basically eat, digest, poop. Um, the interesting thing about worms is that as they do that to organic material, so your food scraps or leaves or grass clippings or any of these other things that you throw into a worm bin, um, all of that stuff, like the worms don't really use up the nutrients that are in those things, right? They're taking something else out of them. Um, so all of the nutrients from those things get left behind in what are called worm castings, which is their worm poop. Um, which you can then spread into like kind of as a, a soil additive into your, your comp or into your beds or into the compost or what a lot of people will traditionally do uh, because they don't want to have like a giant worm system. They just want to have a small one. You can basically put it in water like 
take a five gallon bucket of water, you put two cups worth of worm castings in it, and you can kind of like stir bubble that up. And what you end up with is called compost tea. And so that is like liquid fertilizer. So that liquid miracle grow, this is like that times 10. And it costs you nothing, right? Um, you Like I said, you can go out in the ground, just dig up 50 worms and now you've got a bin going. Um, they're super easy to do. And the cool thing about it too, is they just, they take care of themselves. Um, all they do is just eat. They'll eat their weight in food a day if they're basically happy and healthy and they reproduce pretty regularly. So every 90 days, they'll double the number of worms you've got, which is pretty nuts. So where I started with about a half pound at one point from digging them up, uh, after about a year, I had about mm, 15, 16 pounds worth of worms. And Ooh. so, which was good because I had, I had basically that entire four by four compost system was just going to the worms instead of like waiting for that to slowly compost over time. I was just letting the worms do it because they can do it in a tenth of the time. Oh, that's actually pretty brilliant. Yeah. So they, they can, they can plow through food. Like again, cause they can eat their weight in organic material per day, right? So 16 pounds of worm, that's a ton of organic material that you're going to plow through every single day. Um, and all of that, again, really quickly turns into nutrient dense, uh, additives for your soil, which just makes growing things like the cucumbers we were pulling were 12 to 14 inches long, three and a half, four inches around massive. And it's because the soil they were growing in was so nutrient dense and they just, they had tons of sunlight, tons of water. It was just per you're helping create perfect conditions for your vegetables. Well, let me ask you this. So, uh, there's another theory too, that worms themselves being in a garden, not only are they good for um, composting, not only good for organic material, but they also do have like an aeration effect. Correct. Where when they do dig in the ground, a lot of times when around their roots, they do create like uh, different air pockets, which do help the plant. Can you explain in a ways um, in which I'm describing how that works? Sure. So uh, people don't often realize this, but in addition to, you know, light and sun things, plants also, oddly enough, need oxygen, especially around the roots. Um, there's a reason why, like, for example, if you go to, say, a football field, a soccer field, you go to, like, any university or places like that, you'll find, like, as you walk across the field, like, these little divots where somebody's, like, come through and it's, like, they've dug these little, like, nickel-sized holes all over the place. What they're doing is aerating the ground. Um, by basically punching those holes, they're allowing a, a large influx of, of oxygen into the root system for these plants, which basically helps them grow bigger, thicker roots, which makes them more drought resistant, requires less watering, helps with all of those things. So yeah, in this case, worms, the way they kind of move around those beds, so if you take a couple of handfuls, just drop them into the bed themselves, they're going to move around, they're going to clean up um, some of the debris that's in there, like um, underneath that soil, if you're using a couple of different methods, which I talk about in another article. Um, yeah, and so like they're going to help break down any organic matter, and yeah, they're going to aerate that soil, get you better roots, stronger roots, which in turn equals better plants. That makes a lot of sense right there. So I guess like you have a, another scenario where the first one says apartments with balconies and town hall, townhomes with micro yards. Mm -hmm. So this is pretty interesting because traditionally you think of gardening, you either think of like horizontal gardens where it's like going down deep in the ground 
And then there's other gardens where it's like, I believe it's an ad from like seen on TV from 10 years ago, where it shows like you can make a garden like hanging in the air and it's going like sure. vertically or whatever. Yeah, so, they have those upside down tomato planters. Yeah, exactly. So what is this method that um, you're describing and how do you do it? And what's the benefit factors for doing this? Sure. So this is what, what this is doing, like what you're looking at here, these are basically pallet gardens. Um, it's a super cool little system. Uh, lots of people have tutorials you can Google. Um, I think I end up linking to one because they had a really clever, like nice step-by-step -step uh, tutorial. Pretty much what happens if you take a look at a pallet, um, you know, that's got all of this kind of space. You get about four inches of space from kind of top to bottom on those boards and then all those slats. So what most people are doing is taking um, basically that, that weed fabric, right, that you, would, that you would lay down and garden spaces and things like that to prevent weeds. And they're basically putting in, think of it like, like a pool liner or something like that on the backside of that pallet, right? And so they're just kind of like sealing off the backside of the pallet um, with that, that liner and then filling it with soil. So you kind of think of it as like, a giant bag of soil with a wooden top. And then you just plant, you know, uh, as you kind of see on those, in like where all the lettuce and stuff is popping out, right? Just in between those things, you can just plant some, plant some veggies. It's, what's really cool about it is like, it takes up so little space, right? Exactly, that's what I was thinking. Four, four foot by four foot, right? In a lot of cases, or actually they're a little, they're four foot long, but I think like three feet wide or something like that. So it's like if you've only got a balcony, right, and you've got this little like four by seven or four by ten balcony or something that hangs out of your second floor apartment or something, you can stick a pallet up there and grow food on it, right? That's that doesn't take up any space, you know. And so it's one of those other, like or buy one of those as seen on TV like upside down planting hanger planters, um, things like that are are creative ways in which you can create space to grow food um that you that you didn't think you had like there's this kind of misconception that the only way that you can effectively garden and feed yourself is you know if you're doing something like i was showing earlier where you've got this 10 by 20 space with all these beds and blah 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 blah, blah you know and and a lot of the discourse there's this huge just like really dumb twitter discourse a couple of weeks back where this uh young lady had had talked about like hey buy a gun start a start a garden right and everybody's just like gardening <laughs> and one of the things that a lot of like kind of let's just call them idiots were like arguing for is that like they're showing those pictures of like you know those kind of like those super housing developments in china that are like 40 stories and it's just like they're just crowding all these people and it's like everybody's got a balcony but like there's no like you don't have a yard there's just like every apartment so they're saying oh well what about these people right they don't get to just go garden sure they can Look at it. Like this, is, this takes up no space. Every single one of those places, every single one of those like apartments could stick one of these things on their balcony, and all of a sudden now that entire apartment complex is self-sufficient. That's true. Right? You know what I mean? So it's the idea that you know you have to have all of this foot space is just not the case. Yeah. What are you, what do you think are some downturns to this? Because just by looking at this at face value. Um, if you could have a hard time watering because based on the angle of the bed and the way it's dr driven, you could have like some weird runoff. And at the same time, by having limited soil, if you use it enough, because we just talked about um, making your soil infertile, like wouldn't you have to replace the soil 
almost like every year or every couple of years if you aren't finding a way to have a, a compost in it. Because I think those are the main um, disadvantages I see. But if you're willing to just do something quick and easy and want to spend the money for extra soil, then you could probably do that. So yeah, cool. the cool thing about it is, is when you amend soil um, and when you water, um, soil has a really good, unlike things like dirt and some of these things, soil has a, uh, the, it tends to be the case that soil will equalize itself, right? So if you were to say, take the top part of that pallet system and uh, kind of scoop a good chunk of that out and uh, fill that with like worm castings and then like give it a heavy watering, right? right? That all of the, like the, the, the nutrients and the water and stuff that would just soak down through to the bottom, right? And it would, it would generally tend to just distribute pretty evenly across the, the system. I mean, the other thing is, is in between, you know, like you're going to hit a certain point, like for example, with lettuce, when lettuce grows, you can just kind of chop the tops off and harvest that. And you can do it five or six times and then the plant's basically spent. And then you got to basically pull it by the roots, plant new ones. Um, so when you come to the point where you're planting new ones at that point, yeah, then, you know, you've got those little slats in the wood. You can amend the soil through those. I mean, you can kind of stuff some, some new compost or some new, you know, worm castings or, you know, some kind of liquid fertilizer into those. And then just again, plant into them. Really the biggest downside with like the pallet thing is when you're initially planting your seeds, it doesn't have to be perfectly flat, but it needs to be kind of flat, right? You can't, you can't start them upright. They kind of have to start horizontal. And then after they've kind of taken and they've, they've sprouted and like they've built a decent root structure, then you can turn them upright and just let them run. But so that's to me the probably the biggest problem with like the, the pallet thing is that, yeah, if you're in just a situation where um, you've just got the balcony or whatever, you, you could potentially run into a place of like, ah, how do I get this thing flat for basically about three weeks to get that stuff started. Okay, so here you have um, a video. I believe you sourced it from someone else. It's the name, I believe it's Dirty Buffalo. <laughs> yes, it's a that's, funny that's uh, YouTube uh, name. But here shows how to build a five gallon bucket garden. So this is pretty interesting because I think you see a lot of stuff like this. Uh, remind, it gives me elementary school throwbacks when yep. you learn how to garden for the first time. And so I'm guessing here you have a bucket, obviously. Let's <laughs> wow, RJ, get very basic, right? <laughs> yes, this is a bucket. <laughs> um, my gut, uh, you also fill it with the soil that you want, depending on how bougie you are, or how cheap you are. Um, you can add any types of plants. Um, are, do you, okay, so I believe, I guess we could watch a little bit of the video first, I'll show you. But my yeah, assumption is, is that the, the thing is, is what he's, what he's walking you through is just how to build that frame. Uh, okay. That's all it is, right? It's just the cut list and all those things on building that frame. That frame is basically, it's about five feet in length and it's about three feet wide. And all, as you can see, it's basically a two-tiered shelf system. Um, like, and then those buckets, uh, you can just use any, I would say, food-grade buckets. So if you have a firehouse subs in your town, right, they sell their pickle buckets for two or $3 a piece. Right, or you can go to just about any place and find five gallon food grade buckets in a lot of places. Pickle buckets tend to be the most common ones. So then, yeah, like you just said, you, you however big you want to make that, right? You just stick the buckets in there. You put any kind of soil you want in them. Um, you can keep it as cheap or as expensive as you want. You can do a whole garden mix from Lowe's, or you can 
in a lot of cases, what I would do in a place like that is I would find a bunch of like leaves. Like, you know, if you're living in an apartment complex, go to a local park, you know, rake up a couple of like trash bags full of leaves and then come and basically stuff them 90% full of leaves and then put six, eight inches of soil on the top, right? And then, because over time, as those leaves decompose, you know, drop a couple handfuls of worms into each of the buckets. And then as those leaves decompose and the worms eat those, right, that's going to shrink down over time, right? So then you can kind of refill them here and there uh, with, you can amend it with like some potting mix or something, keep it cheaper. So you, you have some ways that you can, you can make those pretty cheap, if not free. Um, yeah, all it does is really accelerates the decomposition process because natural decomposition, of course, heat, and you know things and organic material we're humans we're gonna sadly pass on and um, decompose but what the worms do is by them eating it first and then you know pooping it out and kind of really accelerates the process by 10 times i think you explained that earlier but i just yeah. wanted to refresh that as well absolutely okay and so i guess i guess it brings that uh, to the end of really the first article could because we actually talked about it earlier about um, what to do with apartments with no, no space. We mentioned earlier that you can add these um, with these more vertical pallets to grow gardening and grow food as well. Yeah. So I think, and also the buckets go into a place too, where it's like, okay, you may not like the aesthetic, but you're, you're not as aesthetic as probably another person as are, but you want to be just basic like me and not bougie at all and just go with the plain old bucket. So I guess we can transition to another article we're going to do today. It's called Building the Soil. Because I think the first article is really a great intro to how the process should be to really building it up, saying that, okay, if you have a tiny land of space, you can do it here. If you don't have any space at all, you could do a vertical structure on your apartment building. Mm -hmm. And if you're not that bougie and you're pretty basic, like me, then you could do it in a bucket. But I guess okay. here we could start with is um, really building the soil. So give us your brief intro to why you wanted to write this piece and why you think it's important really to start the soil level for gardening. Yeah, so I think you, you kind of started off this, this particular episode talking about the, the value of like having good soil. And at the end of the day, the soil really is everything. You can grow plants in pretty much any immediate, like you can go out into an abandoned lot in your town plant seeds and if you water them enough you can you can get something to grow right you'll get a couple of tomatoes or you'll get a head of lettuce or whatever like but they're gonna be pretty uh pretty paltry right they're not gonna they're not, you're not gonna get great yields out of those things because there's just not a lot of nutrition there good soil like good rich nutrient dense soil is what makes or breaks like a, a large-scale yield um a lot of it, like if you go through and you do any research on what are called market gardens, it's a huge kind of thing that people are doing now where it's like you're taking these like in a quarter acre lot, people are able to generate like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in revenue by just basically investing the money to build really, really nice, rich soil and then just running some sort of like high yield cash crop like lettuce spinach microgreens something like that that you can then sell to uh, restaurants or uh, grocers or those types of things uh, because things like lettuce you can harvest multiple times per plant and you know they grow really fast it takes like i think it's like three weeks to go from seed to, to harvest so i mean you could just you can be 
harvesting like tons of lettuce every year, uh, depending on the amount of space. But it's all going to be largely starting with the soil, right? So um, when you talk about compost, there's there's kind of two ways to do it. Like you were talking about a little bit ago, um, it can take a really long time, and that's that's what's called cold composting. It's where you just take everything, you chuck it into a pile, you wait six eight months later it's broken down, it's, it becomes soil. And that's the thing is that's where soil comes from, is from organic material. Um, if you walk out into any forest or any wooded area and you see all that kind of leaf clutter on the, on the ground, if you kind of use your hand and scrape away some of those leaves and you get down into it, all you're gonna find is basically just smaller and smaller and smaller bits of leaf until you see what seems like dirt. And it's like, but that dirt is literally just used to be leaves. Um, and so that's that's all that is, right? It's just that that stuff has basically decomposed into a point where it's now become a nutrient-dense soil. Um, a few years back, um, there was a, a thing called the Berkeley method that got developed, which is called hot composting. And what that discovered is that if you get a certain mix of ingredients, right, a certain number of leaves versus grass clippings or whatever, and you get it to a certain heat, you can recreate that process, that natural process that happens, and you can cut it down from basically six months to six weeks. Um, and you can, so you can do it really lightning fast. Um, and so that hot composting method is, is nowadays what most market gardeners and it's what most farmers even really are using. They're just building these big massive piles. They're making sure they have a good mix of what they call greens and browns. So it's things that have nitrogen versus things that have carbon, because those are the kind of two main ingredients you need for compost. And those are the two main things that like plants kind of thrive on. Um, and so if you basically get the right mix of those and you get the temperature up, you're gonna have compost in, in no time, ready to rock and roll. Yeah, that makes sense. It's almost like, it's almost like a, when you're in the Amazon rainforest, a lot of things decompose very quickly comparative to, like, or any rainforest comparative to any other type of Area. Like in a desert, it takes forever to decompose because it's drier, but if it, it's drier, it's hot. Like the difference between dry heat and dry humid heat. And so I guess here in this scenario, you're talking about adding increase of oxygen as well as uh, with heat, it really expedites the entire process. That's right, right? Like um, basically what, what causes things to decompose is a combination of like temperature, moisture, and like time right so if you can create the kind of perfect scientific conditions of moisture and temperature you can drastically reduce the time okay and so method two i think you break down direct sowing yeah so what did you mean by that so in our last in the in the last article right we have that four by four compost bin system right or you know we have a couple of different things where it's like you have those hot and cold styles um one of the things one of the drawbacks of of having a compost bin is that you do inevitably lose some of your soil nutrition and some of the the soil itself that gets built into the compost bin right that flooring of the compost bin just be kind of becomes soil you know, like a nutrients will leak out into that uh, area. And so like, you know, you're so like, it's not enough that I, I would tell people don't have a compost bin, right? Like it's, it's not, you're not losing that much, but you are losing a little bit. 
direct sowing is basically like, you know, we had talked about it earlier. It's like, you know, your, your watermelon rinds, your, you know, random, your potato peels or carrot peels or whatever. Instead of throwing them into a compost bin, you basically go out into the yard or into your garden. Uh, you, you dig a small hole, you drop them in there, you fill the hole over the top and you just leave. And then you oh, just yeah. let that natural process of them break down, especially if you have worms in those bins or things, things like that. You let that natural process go. And what happens though is, is you're not actually, you're getting 100% of the nutrition of those things into the soil, right? The plants that are planted around those things, as those things break down, the roots are gonna kind of tap into that. They're gonna suck up that nutrients, that, that moisture. They're gonna kind of help that breakdown process happen a little bit faster and they're gonna get full value out of those nutrients. So that makes, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of what uh, my family does down south actually. Yeah. You know, they have a compost bin, they just chuck it in, the dig a hole and suck it in. Like, <laughs> like you explained, it's actually the easiest way, honestly, because all you have to do- easy. Yeah, because yeah. even up north, you know, since it's colder, we only have about a couple good months of prime uh, prime season for growing stuff. So what my cousins would do is, um, when it's hot outside, so they would get like um, watermelons they're going to eat, rinds, throw it in the garden, right, in different areas. And then by the time really the fall ends, they would dig up, and after all their harvest is done, they would dig up everything, um, rake out all the roots, because you don't want all that stuff in there by the time you create a new garden break it all together, break it up in a certain, uh, all different areas throughout the entire garden. That way you mix those nutrients in. So that mm -hmm. when the fall comes and the spring comes back up again, then you flip the soil. That way all the stuff that went to the bottom is now on, is now topsoil and the stuff that goes to the bottom is down there. So when you do the whole process over again, you're replenishing the soil. And so I think this is what you're exactly saying, which actually to me is the easier way. Yes. Composting is kind of and this really, this is the, this is really kind of the way that it's been done for indigenous people, for um, people of the African continent. This is, this is really how composting has worked uh, back to the beginning, right? Um, a lot of people don't know this, but like Yosemite National Park uh, used to belong, uh, before white folks showed up, used to belong to an indigenous tribe. Um, and it was just a giant food forest. You know, they, they would do controlled burns. They would utilize what's called uh, chop and drop method, where basically certain plants that have big, massive leaves, um, they would be planted specifically in certain areas just because they have big, giant green leaves. And so periodically you come by and you cut it, and then you just drop it on the ground and you'd let it decompose right there. Um, or, you know, like, you know, it's come through, you'd have your feast, you'd eat, and then you'd go out and you'd bury the leftovers. Or you'd bury all the scraps. Like you know, like they, you didn't have garbage cans. There wasn't like, you know, waste management corporation in uh, CE one hundred Nigeria. Like that that didn't exist, right? So like, what do you do with all of this like extra leftover stuff that's like rotting or bad? Well, you bury it out in the ground, and over time, now you have better soil nutrition, uh, so that when you go back to plant again, it's it's all there, right? It's it's that concept of like not wasting anything. Right, you eat whatever you can eat, and if you can't eat it, it's fertilizer so that you can eat whatever comes out of it later. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense than just throwing plates and stuff into a landfill and you don't yeah. get any benefits no from it. No value, zero value if it goes in the trash can. So, okay, so you have uh, the third method here, which is called a verma. I believe it's verma composting. I have no idea really what that is. So, do you want to give yeah. like a brief intro? 
Sure. This is basically just using worms, right? So vermicomposting is the technical term for having a worm bin. Um, it's vermicular, I believe, is like the phrase, and it's it's for basically utilizing insects as a predominant um, breakdown method. Oh yeah, vermin. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it it all comes from them Latin roots. Um, but yeah, this is what this is is basically just worm bins. The other option on it too that, that gets used uh, that's started to pick up a little bit of steam and popularity is uh, soldier flies, um, which is uh, an interesting method. There was a, and I think I linked to it in this article, uh, there's a guy who runs a YouTube channel called Nature's Always Right, and he has a chicken coop. And he's all about efficiency and trying to automate everything because the, the big thing with like when you're talking about anarchism, especially a lot of people think that anarchism necess necessitates primitivism, right? Like that we're going back to like living of the ways of like the indigenous people of the 800s or something. No, like you can have technology and you can have like innovation and all of these things um, because it's kind of like very, very kind of communistic to, to innovate your way out of having to do work if you can. So in his system where he has all these things, he's like, I, you know, he's like, I got to go out and I got to feed the chickens every so often. And he's like, I don't want to do that. It sucks. It's a, it's a crappy chore. So he's like, how can I make it so it's like, I don't have to feed my chickens. And so what he did is uh, chickens will eat insects. It's a good source of protein for them, helps give them better, stronger eggs, like bigger eggs, which is good for you if you're growing chickens for eggs. And so he had basically built this system where it was a giant worm bin, but instead of worms, he put fly larvas, like soldier fly larvas. And so what happens is the larva eats the, the stuff, becomes flies, kind of eats some more stuff. It all just composts down the same way that it would be for worms. Um, and then as they basically mature, they'll, they start to leave through this like basically tube that comes out the side and then goes right into the chicken coop where it comes out into this area that the chickens just like pick them off as they come out, right? So it's like chickens get a free meal, like as, as flies come out of this thing. So it's not like you just have millions of flies everywhere, which is sometimes a downside of composting. Um, but it, so now you have this wholly automated system where it's like you're getting, you know, compost to put in your garden. Your chickens are basically getting kind of free protein supplement. Like everything's just working in tandem and you're building this really nice system of like, you know, uh, what's the word I want to, I want to use here. Like this, symbiotic relationship amongst all of the different aspects of your garden system. Exactly. That makes sense. You could attract spiders too, because spiders do like uh, those excess bugs if uh, chickens can't get it to it either. Yeah. That's it. Okay. So I think you really uh, broke it down here gratefully, actually, because in the prior paragraphs, you're talking about cold composting, hot composting, and really the vermicomposting um, I believe is kind of like the middleman between the two, where it's, you mentioned in the article, it's lazy and efficient because the cold composting is, yeah, you know, it's pretty lazy in a sense that you throw everything in the bin, let it do all the work, but at times it, it's not, it's not as efficient because it's time consuming. It takes that long amount of time for the natural, uh, natural process to go. Then you talked about hot composting where it's incredibly more efficient but the actual soil and volume is hot. The, the volume of the soil is higher, but the soil is finer. So you're not getting as many nutrients as you would need. But the well, vermicomp, 
Oh, so you do you do still get quite a bit of nutrients like and so one of the the benefits the the downside of the hot composting is the amount of work that it takes right it's a lot of work because you're having to manage that pile it has to stay at a certain moisture level and it has to stay at a certain temperature for a certain period of time and it has to have a certain oxygen level for everything to work correctly um and so like with cold compost like you get chunks right you get big kind of soily chunks which you can kind of break up with your hands um you can get a much finer kind of more like almost like potting mix doing it the hot composting method but you like you're out there like every like four days with a pitchfork like digging and turning and doing and it's like hard manual labor if you've ever had to throw hay on a on a farm it sucks <laughs> like it's an awful <laughs> gig right so it's like that's literally what you're doing all the time to maintain that Vermicombo hosting, yeah, it's the combination of those two things, right? You just throw it on a pile, and then a couple of days later, you have, like, you know, free stuff, and you didn't have to do all of that, like, heavy lifting for it. So, Yeah, just uh, food for thought, everyone. If you're trying to do the hot posting method, you might not want to add worms, because they'll kill the worms. <laughs> yes, and yeah, that's the thing, is that this that <laughs> pile, in order for it to work, uh, should get up over 160 degrees, right? Um, and Fahrenheit and or Celsius? Uh, Fahrenheit. Okay. Yeah. Celsius would be kind of wild. That'd be like, what, like five something? <laughs> Close or something? Uh, that'd be a lot. Um, but yeah, so like, but that 160, what that is, is like, it, as you know from cooking, right, 160 degrees, that's going to kill all the bacteria. It's also going to be hot enough to kill off any weed seeds. So the nice thing is, is like, you can really compost everything if you use that hot compost method. Like, oh, like I got all this like old hay or I got this thing and it's like, I don't know if it's got seeds in it. Eh, who cares? It's going to get so hot, it's going to kill the seeds off. It's going to kill off any bacteria. So who cares? Just like whatever it was, chuck it in there, get it done. Um, but yeah, again, man, it's so much work. So yeah, you can't throw bugs in, you know, like worms or flies or anything because they will, yeah, they'll just cook, all right? And then now all you get is cooked worms in the middle of your bin that are also breaking down. So. And also, too, I think you mentioned earlier when we were discussing the first article that I know what you guys are thinking, well, do I have to buy worms every time? Uh, we discussed earlier that if you buy a one pound of worms over the course of a year, you could get eight pounds because uh, they're, live they're live animals, they reproduce. So really, it's pretty economically friendly the way you yep. look at it. And you can, you can buy, on average, a pound of worms will run you about 30 between 30 and $50, depending on where you're getting them from. Um, most people will order a place online. It's called like Uncle Jim's Worm Farm or something like that. I think he's, he ships all across the US, like 90% people swear by him uh, who have like YouTube marketing or uh, like market gardening uh, YouTube channels. Uh, because like you just, you know, it comes with basically, it's like 1100 worms in a pound or something. They're smaller. Um, and it's it, like he ships fast. They all show up alive. You know, it's just like it's a super efficient process. But yeah, that that pound of worms becomes eight pounds. And in two years, that eight pounds is what is that eight, 16, 32, 60. Now you get 64 pounds of worms in two years if you buy one pound of worms. So it's like and, and you're kind of maintaining. It's a really, really good system if especially you're trying to build a communal garden type setup. Are there any dangers to, to having uh, too many worms? Because no. that's just, okay. Yeah, that's that's the great part about it. Because it's like worst case scenario, it's like, ah, oh, crud. Like now we've got like all of these worms. Like what do we do with them? I don't know. Take a few handfuls and just go drop them in a park somewhere, right? 
Like, because all they're going to do is just go, like, aerate the ground, create benefits for, like, the natural parks around you, or get eaten by the birds. I mean, like, it's just like, eh. Or it's, if, if you fish, I think I mentioned that somewhere in there in one of these articles, like, if you're big on fishing, that's a bunch of live bait. You know, you, there are a lot of people who have just turned, like, oh, I bought some worms so I could do some vermicomposting, and it's like a couple of years later, they're like, oh, I actually have a worm farm that I just sell worms and make money to people who fish or to people who are also doing this because it's like they just reproduce so fast it's like oh oh crap what am i gonna do with 60 pounds of worms oh i only need like 20 pounds so these other 40 can get turned into something else you know yeah if i see a twitter side hustle on selling worms i'll blame you yeah (laughs) hey man look i'm I'm telling you you you'd be shocked how how quick how addicting it gets to just like oh man look at all these like things i can do and like how much like soil i can build or how much i can get out and just start benefiting the natural world around me and start kind of like undoing so much of this damage that has been done by kind of like our presence in the world right right that makes sense i got all these notifications sorry about that (laughs) that's how good (laughs) frick okay so you have some final thoughts here and i really want to show this um a really nice picture you have here and so one, you have a check mark that says compost, the one who says don't compost. So basically what um, I'm guessing what I'm seeing here is you're giving advice on which materials will be the best used to yield the best results for your crops and which ones you don't want to use because it'll kind of hurt your soil as well as your plants. So why, and tell us the difference first, we'll break this down first between what you can compost and what you can't compost, but break down to me the, the difference between the green materials versus the brown materials and their benefits. Sure. So green materials are things that are going to be high in nitrogen. Grass clippings, uh, leaves, um, like so you like you were talking about like your your family would take all the the plants and all the other stuff from their you know their old garden they'd kind of chop it down and roll that over into the soil. All like anything that's basically green plant related plant matter that's all going to have a lot of nitrogen in it. Um, because nitrogen is the thing that plants use to build leaves, which allows them to do better photosynthesis um, and, and just kind of generate more nutrients, pull more nutrients through the roots, you know, grow bigger, utilizing the sun. Uh, things like eggshells are just rich in calcium. Calcium is really good for your soil. Uh, a lot, a lot of plants, because it does two things. One, it kind of like neutralizes the pH level of your soil. Some plants like tomatoes and things like your soil will be a little more acidic. Some plants, you know, like herbs and things prefer it to be, you know, a little more basic um, or neutral. And so things like eggshells, hair, those types of things, they'll come with like that calcium, which helps balance out the pH levels of your soil. What kind of hair? Like human hair, right? Like if you like shave your head, like you can, you know, as long as your hair has been cleaned all the way and doesn't have like product in it, you can just throw your hair out in the compost bin, right? Like nail clippings can go in the compost bin. Like you can compost pretty much anything. You'd be like, I think you'd be surprised just how easily, because that's the thing is at the end of the day, like the part of the do not compost, a lot of people, and I'll get to that a little bit more, but like things like styrofoam plastic, you can't compost those because they don't biodegrade at all. But if it's like a living or thing, or at one time was a living thing or connected to a living thing, it'll biodegrade, you can compost it. Um, 
So you have manure. Manure, again, it's high nitrogen, right? All cows eat is grass. They drop droppings. It's basically just pure nitrogen. So those things are good. Brown materials are going to be things that are high in carbon, um, like cardboard, paper products, uh, pine needles, wood chips, uh, sticks, corn cobs, things that are a little bit more like woodier roots. Um, those things are all going to be more carbon rich. Um, and like that kind of balance with, you know, kind of green versus brown materials uh, is what creates kind of what we consider optimal soil. Um, if you ever go out and buy soil amendments from a store, whether it's like a Home Depot Lowe's or just like a or like local nursery, it's going to usually have a series of numbers at the bottom. It'll be like uh, 7112 or 719 or something. Or what those are is those are basically like nitrogen, like phosphorus, and I want to say it's the calcium levels, like, like kind of parts per million levels of the soil or that amendment setup. And so getting a good mix of greens and browns ensures that you can get a nice multi-nutrient, highly rich soil. Uh, with the things like don't compost, you can compost meat and fish or bones or greasy foods or fat and butter and oils, um, dairy. So those things you can compost. People generally recommend you don't because they tend to bring uh, things like rats, raccoons, like those types of things. They bring uh, unwanted critters into the garden space, right? Um, and if you bring rats in, uh, they'll eat the compost, sure, but it's only a matter of time before they decide they don't want like the nasty rotting meat and they'd rather have your fresh cucumbers, you know? And so now all of a sudden you're losing your garden to pests. So if you are in a situation though where you have like kind of an enclosed system or you have a way to protect against those types of pests, or you just like, say for example, out here in the desert, we don't get a ton of things like that. So it's like, that's not a big deal, right? Um, if you can kind of protect from those things, yeah, check them out there. If you're utilizing that hot composting method, you can also do things like diseased plants, right? Because again, like you don't want that disease to spread, but in a hot compost method, that temperature is going to get up enough. It's going to kill off all of that. Who cares? But yeah, things like glass, metal, plastic, styrofoam, those things don't break down, right? So you just, you don't, you're not going to just throw garbage into your garden space, right? So you wouldn't just throw garbage into the compost bin. That makes a lot of sense there. And I think that really wraps it up, really. So that was um, yeah. really a great two articles that you've written. I hope it really helps a lot of people that are looking forward to starting a garden, whether if you're in an urban city, rural area, or a suburb, um, if you're just someone looking for a hobby or really trying to feed your community or for your family, or want to try something new and stay away from those uh, GMO type of food and plants. Mm -hmm. It's basically great to try out. So any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I mean, um, I believe it's in the five steps article. Um, I basically linked to a, a number of YouTube channels. Uh, there's like MI Gardener, there's Epic Gardening. There's a couple of these other ones. Uh, there's another guy that I watch. His name is Josh Satin. He's out in um, North Carolina, I think. Like, if you got some free time and you don't know what to do with yourself, go watch some gardening videos like on YouTube. It's, I was in a position where I was stuck at work, like having to just kind of like 
supervised some some third-party contractors for like two weeks and didn't know what else to do and so i was goofing off on my phone one day sitting on the couch and i ended up down the youtube rabbit hole and i was watching this video on like gardening and the ones i especially like is mi gardener um he's in michigan he's uh he's a little bit dry it's kind of hard to like he can be a little hard to watch if if you get bored easy uh because he's very wordy so it's like i get it because i'm like your kindred spirits in that sense <laughs> but um but like he's so thorough like all of his videos are like 15 minutes long but it's like in 15 minutes you know literally everything you need to know about tomatoes in general that you can grow tomatoes right you know exactly what kind of soil it is how often when to water like what they should look like, how to prune them, like yada, yada, yada. There's all these things. And he, he does a method of gardening called high yield, which is, which is also what I'm doing, which is why I, I kind of pitch for like these, these smaller beds. When you, when you look on the back of a pack of seeds and it says, oh, space it like eight inches apart or foot apart, two feet apart, that's for commercial uh, farms or like commercial market gardens. Like that's for people who have like giant machines that come through and harvest things you're not doing that you can cram those things like two inches apart um and if you've got enough nutrition in that soil right you've got like say a, a two foot deep bed and it's just full of really rich soil yeah i mean you can you can have 15 20 tomato plants in there and they're all going to produce and they're going to produce big fat juicy delicious tomatoes and you're not going to have any problems with it because you know it's like you're just doing the things that it needs to do. What's nice about that methodology as well that he talks a lot about is um, you don't have to weed almost ever, right? Because if you're growing enough plants, there's no room for weeds to grow, right? Those plants are eating up all the nutrition. They're eating up all of the water. They're doing all, there's no, there's no room for weeds. So you just, so that's kind of cool. And then you just, you don't have a lot of room for pests like, like insects, ants, uh, weevils, those types of things. Because again, there's just, there's no room for them. Um, and a lot of those things will invite things like bees, spiders, other insects or birds that will come in and just eat up the stuff that would have been a detriment to your plants. So that kind of high intensity gardening, I mean, you can spend probably about six, eight hours, watch a ton of MI Gardener videos and go out and just like feed your neighborhood. So mm -hmm. it's, it, it can get addictive, um, but I do recommend it. Like it's, um, at the end of the day, it's, this is baseline level stuff. If you're, if you're going to talk about revolutionary politics, if you're going to talk about revolutionary anything, um, this, is, this is the absolute bare minimum. Uh, grocery stores are not going to be open during the revolution. Costco is not going to stay open uh, for us when we decide to, like, you know, take back worker power. Um, those things just aren't going to exist anymore. So you've got to eat. Um, not even Sam's Club? Come on, we got to yeah, eat Sam's I mean, Club too, it, right? I mean, Right, like, and that's the thing. Is when you think about it too, like those places are gonna get looted. They're like the first places to get looted in like a, a panic situation. Oh, well, Target right? got looted and burnt down. So I... yeah, right. Like so, that's it. Like so, it's just like there's not gonna be like you're not gonna be like oh let me just wait four or five days and go grab groceries. There's not gonna be anything at the grocery store. Like not only are all the workers gonna have bailed, so the doors are gonna be like closed. So now we're gonna have to just like bust in and steal everything. But it's like. There's, it's just, it's all going to be gone on day one. So you've got to have like some kind of backup plan. So unless you're going to be like one of those weird alt-right doofuses like down in like Georgia who are got 60 buckets of that like 20 year freeze-dried like space food or whatever that they're planning on like living on. This stuff's gross. Like it's gross and it sucks. Yeah, and it's full of just a bunch of like harmful crap. Like you don't want to eat that. It's not, it's not organic. It's not, it doesn't taste good. 
like nobody wants freeze-dried spaghetti and meatballs like you know like come on like <laughs> yeah we want that fresh juicy stuff like i would love the lemon tree i would love an orange tree oh that was but I, I live in michigan so i have to keep my expectations a little bit low depending on and, and that's the thing so again like in my gardener this guy grows all year long and he does it in michigan right where it's like freezing or it's cold it's just a matter of like growing certain things like in the summertime yeah you're going to be growing what we call your three sisters your your corn your beans uh your potatoes right um and then in the winter time you're growing more cold hardy crops um lettuces carrots uh, like root vegetables uh so potatoes beets radishes those types of things ginger um, yeah, ginger's really good, garlic, onions. Um, those all grow really well if you can basically get a little sheet of plastic to kind of cover over the top of your raised bed, and that creates some heated insulation. So, yeah, it might be 10 degrees outside, but it's going to be, I don't know, 50 inside the bed, 40 inside the bed, which is way still above the temperature, that kind of minimum temperature those things can thrive in. So you've got those options. And then, yeah, during the summertime, you plant your, your beans, your tomatoes, your cucumbers, those types of stuff. Um, in the spring, you can plant those kind of mid-hardy uh, veggies and stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, and then fruit trees, right? Like if you go the fruit tree route, they're going to flower and fruit, you know, in the, in the summer and fall. So you're going to be able to harvest those and learn how to can stuff. That's obviously a recommendation we'll get into another time. But yeah, you can... You can absolutely, um, even in a place like Michigan or Maine or, you know, Canada, whatever, there's no excuse. Like, there's greenhouses exist, right? You can build a greenhouse. I built a greenhouse in Alabama for absolutely free. Um, I, like, you can go to any uh, furniture store um, and they get, like, mattresses, right, for, like, displays and stuff. Just ask them if they still have the plastic wrapping that the mattresses came in, if they've thrown it away yet. And if they say no, ask if you can have it. They'll just give it to you. And that's that's like eight mil plastic. That's better than the stuff. That's thicker and better than the stuff that actually goes on commercial greenhouses. So then, if you can go out to say an old construction site or something else where they've got all this lumber that's getting ready to be thrown in the trash because they didn't need it, you say, "Hey, are you throwing that away? Great. Can I have it? Sure. Now you can just go build a greenhouse for free. Cost you nothing. Like I did it. it was, took me about five hours. Now it wasn't great." But it got the job done. I mean, it lasted through the winter. Uh, it ended up, tornado winds kind of ended up finally taking the thing out, uh, <laughs> which was a bummer. Yeah, but it's Alabama. Say, so you got, uh, you're yeah. right next to like the Great Plains areas. That's our, like yeah. Tornado Valley. There we go. That's Yeah, that, that Tornado name. Valley and, and where we were in North North Alabama, right there on that kind of Tennessee border. Like you you just, you pick up all of the wind from either hurricanes that comes uh, come up from the South or like the tornadoes. like you you just you kind of get all the wind from those things and so we it kind of got blown out there one one winter but even then it's like it cost me nothing to build this thing and i was able to grow garlic and onions and uh a couple of green vegetables i don't remember what i had in there maybe like basil or something um yeah it's like three hours of worth of my time zero dollars i've got a functioning greenhouse that i can grow plants in the winter so yeah there's just there's really no excuse to not be at least considering this as part of your organizing effort. Uh, lots of organizations uh, are doing community gardens. Right now I'm working with AAPRP uh, here in Albuquerque, which is the um, All African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, they just started one. Uh, 
it's yeah, this is this is baseline level, entry level revolutionary stuff. Got it. Yeah, this is also something you could start with the kids. You know, I'm tired of seeing like Twitter timelines of capitalists trying to go after your kids. Where if you're into some anarcho commie shit, this is how you get the kids involved to leftism. Start them off. Hey, this is how you make a garden. You can use this, like you said, for organizing efforts. Um, not only are you making people's material conditions better by feeding them and showing them, hey, there's an alternative to um, like Farmer Jack or, oh, wow, I'm really, I'm really showing like my young age with this. Like there's Farmer Jack in Michigan, it closed like before the recession. There's also like a Joe Randazzle, all these different types of uh, really vegetable grocery stores. Instead of going to them and they have good product, but it's kind of expensive, sure. you can do it on, you can do it yourself and feed your own community. So I'm really glad that you came and really talked to this with our audience on Revolutionary Jargon. Absolutely, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that's the key. So you gotta just, like, you gotta stay, you gotta build community. Um, and that's the key, and that's how you do it, right? And you build community, like, community buy-in, right? If everybody's out there on the weekends planting or picking weeds or, like, laying down mulch or doing something like that, um, everybody's invested. Right, so you, you don't have to worry so much about like the problems of like oh what if somebody like vandalizes or oh what if they're like that no like people aren't going to do that right this is theirs everybody has that kind of feeling of communal ownership right they they now all communally own the means of production and so it's like you're doing actual communism at that point if you so if you're an ml you got to do it right if you're an anarchist like you got to do it basic. It's the same thing as like what Richard Wolf said about worker co-ops. When workers feel like they have an ownership and a sense of belonging in their background, especially with the working in, they'll take pride in it and they will defend it. So yeah, if absolutely. anyone comes and wants to fuck up their shit, they're getting their ass beat. So <laughs> catch his hands. Yeah. Exactly. So you gotta love it. All right, so I guess uh, that really wraps up this episode. I want to thank you, my man EQ, friend of. Uh, revolutionary jargon and really the first second comer on the show to really discuss it and I look forward to having him back frequently because we do a lot of great things and he writes a lot of great articles about um, anarchism you can check those out if you missed it as well as um, really what we're doing right now feeding the revolution and I'm pretty sure in the future he's got some more stuff up his sleeve and he always has an open invitation to discuss more things moving forward so I do want to thank you and this has been Revolutionary Jargon on the FHL Network, episode 15, How to Feed the Revolution with my man EQ. Oh, and we forgot your uh, Twitter name. So drop um, that. Yeah, let me think here because I just I just changed that recently. I believe it's what, Earthquake Photo? Uh, no, I, I just changed that recently. Oh, you just <laughs> okay, you just changed it. Yeah, I just I'm I'm going full full blown on the anarchism thing at this point. So uh, where, where's it at? It is at useful anarchy. Okay, so his Twitter at is at Useful Anarchy. So if you don't want, if you want to check out what he uh, says on Twitter, um, check that out. Um, you should also check out his Substack. What's your Substack as well? So that one's going to just be earthquake.substack.com. Okay, check that out, earthquake.substack.com. So if you want to tune into more of his articles, also if you want to donate, most of his are all of his articles, I believe, are free. But if you want to support his work, yep. you definitely can. Yeah, and uh, for what it's worth, if you do donate uh, through the Substack or you subscribe for a paid Substack membership, all of the money from those uh, paid Substack memberships uh, go to towards mutual aid. Uh, I don't keep that money. So um, that all goes to help different mutual aid efforts. Okay, perfect work. So I hope everyone check that check his stuff out. 
Um, I hope you liked this episode. This has been Revolutionary Jargon on the FHL Network, episode 15, on how to feed the revolution with my man EQ. And we are signing out.